Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, do you know what? I'm excited, but not half as excited as Mrs. Graham, my Spanish teacher, is going to be from school when she hears because she begged us to get this guest on. Right. First of all, I want to ask you, Alina, I'm going to give you a quote. That's okay. the ink of the scholar is more sacred than the blood of the martyr. And I'm going to give you three nouns, algebra, alchemy and alcohol. Do you know what the significance is? A crazy night out. No. <laughs> Do you know who can tell us? Our guest, I'm sure. So we have Jim Al-Khalili with us today. He's a, right, don't, you're going to be intimidated. He is a quantum physicist, author and broadcaster, one of the best-known popular scientists in Britain. He has a PhD in nuclear theory, has published over 100 research papers, 12 books, uh, which have been translated into 26 languages. He's found time to write a novel. He's also a regular presenter of TV science documentaries and a long-running Radio 4 programme. Are you impressed? I, I I run away. I'm going to run away. I'm absolutely <laughs> terrified. Jim, hello. <laughs> hello there. Tell you what, I'm I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've managed to get it all in a paragraph. I'm amazed. Jim, can you tell Alina who the quote is and what the significance of those words is? Well, the the um the the connection here is uh, the civilization in the Islamic Empire. Um, in medieval times, which I guess, you know, most of us don't, most people in certainly in the West don't know about. So those three words, algebra, alcohol and alchemy are all derived from Arabic words. The L is the definite article, um, mm. the. So, uh, so I'm, I, I guess we're going to talk about this uh, um, later on, you know, the derivation of these words. The quote what was it from the Prophet Muhammad? I'm, it is, I'm, yes. I, I, I thought it was. I wasn't quite sure. I didn't want to sort of be yeah. too cocky, too no, cocksure. It is. <laughs> so, Jim, one of your books is Pathfinders, The Golden Age of Arabic Science. And we're mm. desperate to get you on to discuss this because it's something that just, I think, gets overly bypassed in the West. And that's the um, Arabic contribution to science. So it was carrying on the pursuit of intellectual inquiry, really for picked up the baton from the ancient world didn't it in the early medieval period yeah that's right i mean we 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 all know about the ancient greeks and you know the household names like you know aristotle and plato and archimedes um you know and this is over two thousand years ago we also all know of the great scientists of the renaissance in in europe and the scientific revolution galileo and newton and copernicus but we sort of assume that that gap of 2,000 years almost in between the ancient Greeks sort of fading and Europe rising again, we assume nothing happened. 
Mm. And no, you know, knowledge was uh, new knowledge was developed. No, no great scholars. And of course, that's not the case because in China and India and in the Islamic Empire, these were were flourishing civilizations while Europe was in the Dark Ages. So it's it's a fascinating story. So this coincides complete with the rise of Islam as well, doesn't it? It it does. Uh, yes, I mean, I think. Um, there are certain areas of science that were encouraged by this new new uh, new religion that arose in in the Middle East. You know things like astronomy, because you know the the, the rise of Islam meant you know you, you had to pray uh, several times a day, so you need to track the the you know the, the phases of the moon. Um, there were things in Islam about cleanliness before you pray, and so that led to sort of issues of hygiene and therefore development of, 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 of medicine. Um, but most importantly, of course, is that when Islam came, came about in, in, the, in the seventh century and spread throughout the Middle East and much more widely, the language of the holy book, the language of the Quran was Arabic. And so everyone had to learn Arabic if they wanted to read the Quran. So that unifying language then became the lingua franca of all scholarship you know, all science and, and, and philosophy and theology and all thinking. If you wanted to get your words out there, you, you wrote your manuscripts in Arabic. And that was hugely important. And it helped development of all sorts of areas of science and a synthesis of science from, from the ancient Greeks, from India, from Persia. All these great texts that were in existence in different languages were translated into Arabic all in one place predominantly initially in Baghdad, which was the, the capital of the Abbasid uh, Empire. Um, and, and that led to sort of this flourishing of, of, um, of uh, knowledge and civilization for, for several centuries. It's mad because this is an age, isn't it, where we perceive Europe or historically have perceived Europe as going through a, a dark age. That's right. I mean, you know, when you think back historically to, say, the Crusades, uh, you know, the Europeans traveling to, to, to Jerusalem and, and, you know, wars over, over many decades. Um, actually, the Crusaders were the baddies. <laughs> the <Yeah>. Crusaders were the, <laughs> you know, they turned up, there's this flourishing civilization in, in the Middle East, the Levant, you know, which is where now, you know, Syria and, and, and Lebanon and, and uh, Palestine, Israel is that, that area of the Middle East was flourishing. It was, it was, you know, these were very enlightened, educated people. And you get these armies of sort of, you know, uh, pest-ridden, you know, sort of uh, played and really not their heart, not really in it, you know, armies of, of the Crusaders coming in. Because, yeah, you know, Europe was in the Dark Ages. Of course, there were scholars in Europe, but there were tiny pockets of them. The odd, you know, you can name sort of a handful of, of, of people in the... 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th century in Europe who are doing interesting, you know, thinking interesting thoughts. But all the, all the, the, the great advances in so many areas of science were all taking place under the umbrella of the Islamic empire. It's amazing. Um, I just, let's get into more detail, but I just will stick a pin in it. Uh, I think, I think this is your birthplace we're going to. So the first paper mills were established in Baghdad at the end of the 8th century. Is that right? Well, it's, they're the first paper mills in the Islamic world. Uh, I should say, yes, I mean, the, you, you know, listeners might think, you know, God, was Jim a quantum physicist? Why is he you know, <laughs> blow, blowing the trumpet of, the, of this? You know, I, first, let's say I'm not religious, you know, so, yeah. so I'm not saying, you know, saying you know, Islam is a great religion, therefore, all this great science happened. Mm. But yes, I do have, you know, 
links that I was born in Baghdad mm-hmm. and, and, and so, so following that story. Um, in terms of paper mills, and paper was hugely important in, in kick-starting this revolution in, in science, mm. it was actually developed in China. Uh, and there were paper mills in China. But when the Islamic armies traveled east and sort of conquered, they got all the way to China and hit the buffer. There was another great, powerful empire there. But they took back with them Chinese prisoners of war who taught the scholars in, in Baghdad how to manufacture paper. And suddenly you could produce books much more cheaply and in larger quantities than, you know, using part or papyrus or, or clay tablets. Um, so that actually helped, you know, the, the, these building of these paper mills in Baghdad in the 8th, 9th century w- was part of the, one of the, the big reasons why science flourished at that time. Can you tell us about the reign of Harun al-Rashid? Yes, Harun al-Rashid was a, a very charismatic, larger-than-life character. He was the caliph... Uh, of the Abbasid Empire. I think it may have been the third caliph. Um, I think fifth. The fifth, there you go. Yeah. Sorry. Only because I've just read it this morning, otherwise <laughs> I would not correct you. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I wrote it down in my book, but I can't. I'm, yeah. I'm not cheating, you see. I'm just Alex this is on it. Um, uh, Harun Rashid is, is, a, is a character known around the world because he, he appears in the Arabian Nights stories, the Thousand and One Nights. Um, you know, a lot of those stories are about the caliph Harun al-Rashid walking through the streets of Baghdad and, and, and chatting to people. Um, Baghdad, during the reign of al-Rashid, was the greatest city on the planet. It was flourishing. It was wealthy. It, you know, anyone who wanted to be anything, you know, the great poets, the great scholars, the, the great musicians, the great architects, they all went to Baghdad because that's where the money was. That's where the patronage was. That's where you had to be. And even, you know, the, 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 the great um, uh, uh, kings and, and, and uh, rulers in Europe, Charlemagne is, is a good example. You know, King Charlemagne went to Baghdad and was gobsmacked by just how opulent that, that city was. So Harun Rashid was, was oversaw this great uh, time in Baghdad. But he wasn't particularly interested in science and scholarship. Mm. You know, it, it was really his his son, who I guess I'm gonna we're gonna move on to in a minute, who really pushed teaching and translation and books and reading and scholarship. Yeah, tell us about him because he's great. Yes, Al Moon is is uh, is a great. I, I I worked out that he was born just a few miles down the Tigris River from where from the hospital that I was born in in Baghdad. Dad, oh, but well. obviously, uh, I'm, I'm not that also. Also, he was one of <laughs> No, not performing. at the same time. Obviously, um, so he was a he is a um, uh, a, a very uh, he was a caliph who was who was obsessed with scholarship, obsessed with learning. So when the the Islamic armies would would uh, um, uh, collect the spoils of war from the surrounding um, regions when the, the, they conquered, he wouldn't ask for them to bring back gold and, and, and jewels and money he'd ask them to bring back books and those books would come back and he would then get his scholars to translate them into arabic he apparently you know this is apocryphal how how, how can we check just how accurate this is he had this a dream about aristotle the great greek thinker probably probably the probably the greatest genius who ever lived i, I would argue 
Um, Newton and, and uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci might run him close. Um, Elmer Moon dreamt of Aristotle, and Aristotle told him that he had to seek knowledge and he had to uh, um, learn as much as he could about the world. And that dream apparently really, really stuck with him. And so he would provide patronage for scholars. He, we don't know much about it, but we know that there was this um, library translation house uh, um, uh, school of thinking called the House of Wisdom. Uh, in Baghdad, that slightly um, equivalent of the library at Alexandria, isn't it? Very much so. I mean, it, it, it's not a university as we would mm. call it today, but it's a place where scholars went and talked to each other, mm -hmm. and and th th they were given the freedom to 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 translate. They were, they had scribes who would write their books for them. So it was it was a very thriving. Uh, um, uh, uh, I don't know, some, some institution where a lot of this, this uh, scientific knowledge was developed. And Al-Makmoon oversaw it. It existed before him probably as a library or as a store of, of, of texts and books. And this, because there's no evidence of it today, you know, because all, all of Baghdad pretty much, there's hardly much left of, of that um, Abbasid period because all the buildings were made of, you know, um, sun-dried bricks and there's so many fires and floods over the centuries. Uh, it might have even been part of Elmut Moon's, the Caliph's palace itself, where the House of Wisdom was. But certainly in terms of the power, the symbolism it even holds today, it was an incredibly important place. Who was Jabir Ibn Hayyan? Is he a scientist or an alchemist? Okay, well, Let's, I, I, I'm just going to be pedantic with the pronunciation, if that's all right. No, please do. <laughs> so it's Jabir ibn Hayyan. Um, I can even roll my R's to, 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 to the correct Arabic pronunciation. Yeah. In true <laughs> Cockney fashion, I cannot at call all. Him, call him Jabir, that's fine. Yeah. No, can you, can you, for, for the Polish person in the room, can you say that again so I can try it, give it a go? Okay, it's Jabir ibn, Jabir. ibn Hayyan. Hayyan. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the Polish person can do it. That's not bad. There, there you <laughs> go. Yeah. The Cockney car. <laughs> in, interesting, you, you mentioned Polish. I, I received an email from, from someone today who complained about a book, which I only wrote the forward for. I didn't actually write the book itself, but they saw my name on the front cover they thought it was mine, where it said that Copernicus was Italian. And oh this, this woman who wrote to me, said, Look, we haven't got that many great people to celebrate. Please don't take Copernicus away from us. He was Polish. <laughs> oh, I know. I saw him crafted out of salt. Wow. In a yeah. mine. What's the mine called, Alina? Uh, it's in Vialitka. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's crafted completely out of salt in the mine. Yeah. Wow. Well, he, I mean, he's, he's one of the, I mean, I talk about him in my book, Pathfinders, because he, you know, he, he was one of those, the, the great scientists who, who made the transition possible from the, the scholarship of the Islamic Empire in medieval times to, to, to the modern scientific revolution. Do you know what? Um, We're um, just just a quick 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 one here just to throw in. So in Poland we call him Kopernik. Kopernik, okay. Yeah. And it starts with a K and ends with a K, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> just okay. a mutual well, scholarship go. going on here today. Yeah. I love so, it. so we've got Jabir ibn Hayyan and Kopernik. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> so Jabir ibn and Hayyan, um, well, he was a scientist and he was an alchemist. You know, he was probably one of the first true scientists, certainly of, of, of the uh, medieval Islamic world. He was born in, in a city in Iraq called Kufa, 
which happens to be the city where my father was born. So that's an interesting connection there. It's a city south of Baghdad. He worked alone. He was before the time of Al-Ma'mun. So he was before the House of Wisdom. And, and, and so, you know, give him credit for, for, for doing what he did uh, without the support of, you know, a whole culture of, of, of scholarship around him. Um, to say that he was an alchemist, and of course, we know alchemy is, is, a, is a superstitious, you know, sort of uh, uh, more spiritual side. It's not proper science. But, you know, even Isaac Newton uh, dabbled in alchemy. Uh, and so the, the the distinction between alchemy and chemistry, which is also what Jabal Hayam worked on, is is rather blurred. In fact, the word alchemy derives from the Arabic word alchemia, which even today means chemistry, the science. You know, and and there wasn't a distinction between chemistry and alchemy until a few centuries ago, when when we sort of decided one is proper science and, and one isn't. Um, but Jabir and Hayyan wrote very obscure texts and many people didn't quite understand what he was saying. He developed a lot of techniques in chemistry, which we still use today. You know, the sort of techniques you do, you know, putting liquids into test tubes and heating them up and filtrating them and whatever. A lot of that stuff he was doing himself. Um, but the word is another interesting um, uh, uh, origin of a word. The word gibberish, which in English we mean talking nonsense comes from the Latinized version of Jabir Hayyan's name, Al-Jibber. So Jibber became gibberish, meaning any text that was too obscure to understand. There's a whole <laughs> load of gibberish going on on History Hack on a daily basis. <laughs> it's been go. three months of lockdown now. We're starting, we make less sense every day. <laughs> more more alchemy worse. than chemistry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The scope of Arab inquiry is massive. Uh, maps, trying to decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, star charts, uh, adopting the Hindu number system to deliver the numerals we use today, calculating the height of the atmosphere pretty accurately. What for you, if I had to ask you for the biggest single achievement in this period, what do you think it would be? Um, it's a horrible well, question. I well, well, no, actually, I think probably I and, and you know, so I'm not a historian of science, uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, I, I've studied at least studied this subject enough to know what historians of science will probably say. And I would say it's the invention of algebra. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, X plus Y equals three, all the stuff that we learn at school and, and most people hate. I loved. Um, <laughs> Certainly in the hate camp, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I was useless uh, at it, that's why. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's like Marmite, I suppose, you love it or you hate it. Um, but algebra, the word, again, derives from the Arabic, meaning al-jabr, uh, which is the title of a book written in the House of Wisdom in the ninth century by a great Persian mathematician by the name of Khawarizmi. Um, um, so algebra in a sense sort of existed before, you know, the Greeks were doing something like, even the Babylonians were solving quadratic equations, you know, equations involving X squared, but they weren't really developing a field called algebra. It was more what we'd call sort of number theory, number systems, you know, it's more arithmetic than algebra. Um, Al-Khwarizmi, so I put an L in front of Khwarizmi's name. That's the Arabic way of, of saying his name, Al-Khwarizmi. But actually, more correctly, because he's Persian, there's no L. So I should just call him Khwarizmi. <laughs> so he wrote this book. He wrote this book, um, uh, the Book of Completion, Kitab al-Jabr, 
and algebra became algebra, um, which was probably a popular science book. You know, it, was, it wasn't too technical. But the lovely thing about it is, you imagine a book about algebra, just full of equations and formulae. This book was written entirely in prose. So he'd use words. He'd, you know, where, where we'd say um, x minus 3 equals 17, he would say, take, take the object that is unknown and subtract from it 3, and the answer that you will get is 17. That means the unknown must be 20. So he'd write it all in, in longhand text. Oh, wow. Because the symbols, the symbolism of algebra, hadn't been developed yet. This is um, in the very late 12th century, isn't it? Like in the 11th no, Chorismi was actually um, uh, 9th century, so 800s. Oh, wow, even earlier. During the time of of, uh, El Matmoon in the House of Wisdom. Wow. So a long time ago. (laughs) Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Alina's got another one to try and pronounce now. I know, and I'm just <laughs> sending you a message asking how do I pronounce it. <laughs> I'm going to go Al Biruni. Is that yeah. right? Uh, yeah, uh, Biruni. Yeah. Biruni. Yeah, he was impressive. What he did was, he do? Yeah. He, he was impressive, and, and, and I like him so much, partly because he's not so well known. Mm. Um, so he was a contemporary of another. He's also Persian, not Arab. Um, uh, he lived in, in sort of Central Asia, sort of modern-day Pakistan area. Um, he was a contemporary of a much greater, more famous scholar called Ibn Sina or, or Avicenna. Uh, so m- many h- historians, philosophers of science will have heard of Avicenna. Um, he was a great physician and a philosopher. Beiruni was just as brilliant but not so well known, partly just out of sheer luck that his books, he, he, although he wrote his books in Arabic, because, you know, you had to write your books in Arabic if you wanted anyone to read them, they never got translated into Latin. So a lot of these great scholars, the, or the ones that we know of today in the West, are because their books were translated from Arabic into Latin by European scholars. Beruni, not so much of his work was, but he was basically the Leonardo da Vinci of the medieval world there is not an area of scholarship that he didn't have something to say on and something important and intelligent to say on, you know, whether it's history, geography, algebra, astronomy, medicine, philosophy, maths, you name it, any, any un- modern university department, Beiruni wrote a book about that field. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's lovely stories about some of the, the, um, 
the, the, the contributions that he's made to science and, 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 and the arts, indeed, in fact. Um, and talking of going like on a broader scale, when we were talking about age, Central Asia, oh, sorry, like Persia, uh, I can't even get my words out today. We're talking about Afghanistan, Pakistan area there, mm. going all the way the other way to Andalusia. Can you tell us about Al Is it Zarawi? Zarawi, yes. Yes, yeah, so, so th- this is a, th- th- tells you the scope of how big the Islamic empire was at its grandest because, you know, the whole of what modern-day S- Spain is was, was part of what we, we, we call Andalusia. It was affiliated, it was part of the Islamic empire, very loosely affiliated to the Abbasid rulers in Baghdad, but pretty much autonomous. Um, so Al-Zahrawi was named because he worked in the, the, the palace city of Al-Zahra. Now, this is a, it's a bit like Versailles outside Paris. So it's a palace city outside of Cordoba uh, in, in southern Spain. Um, it's, it's in ruins now, but, you know, it's a tourist destination. You can go and see all the, with the pillars and things, what's left, what's left there. Al-Zahrawi worked there and he was a physician and a surgeon. Uh, he is famous because he invented something like a hundred different surgical instruments or certainly perfected them. So a lot of things that even we use today, like um, uh, uh, um, syringes and catgut for, for, for stitching, for surgery, uh, 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 were, were developed by him. And you can even to look him up online and, and you can see pictures from his texts of, you know, forceps for childbirth, for example, mm. that, that, that he used. So a, a great scholar, a great um, surgeon, very influential. He even um, advanced ideas, you know, in, in uh, uh, um, operations and, and, and developing anesthetics, you know, usually using sort of various drugs like opium and, and, and so on. But uh, yeah, I mean, hugely influential, probably the most influential surgeon before before the Renaissance. I have to ask, who's your? Do you have a favourite, or is it like asking you to pick a favourite child? Uh, no, I do have a favourite. It's funny. I, I, a while ago, I gave a, a schools talk where I, I had it as a football match between uh, the great thinkers of the Islamic medieval world and the great thinkers of ancient Greece. You know, so oh. I had in Greece, I had Aristotle and Plato. You know, bossing them midfield and, and you know I had I think Zahrawi made the team and Beirunia obviously made the team <laughs> <But> <laughs> definitely favorite, you're, you're losing a leader with the football analogy but I'm absolutely loving it <laughs> who won <laughs> in the end given. though who won uh, I, I, I'm not sure it even got to that I think it was more the fun of you know yeah. who I put on on the left wing and who would be in goal who did you put in goal because that's usually where you put the fat kid isn't it like that is true. <laughs> it's what true. happened when I was at school. I, I think, I, certainly for the Greeks, I seem to remember Archimedes. With, with uh, Very, you're good with his hands, you see. So, <laughs> definitely. But, but my striker in the, the, the team of the Islamic world um, is actually my, my, my favourite scholar of that period. And his name is Ibn al-Haytham. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a physicist like me. He was, he was the greatest physicist in a, in a span of two millennia between um, Archimedes, the greatest physicist of ancient Greece, and Galileo and Newton in, in Europe. Ibn al-Haytham wrote uh, books on all sorts of, on astronomy and astrophysics and optics and algebra. He, he developed so many ideas about the nature of light 
that we, we think of Newton as, you know, you know, Newton messed around with prisms and, and mm. colours of the rainbow and so on. Well, Ibn al-Haytham was doing that many centuries before Newton, look, in studying uh, ideas like reflection and refraction and all, all those sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, he, he's my favourite scholar. And also because there's some lovely stories about him, how he, he had a, a job which he hated and he didn't want to uh, carry on. He wanted to go and study astronomy. So he pretended to be mad and got sacked from his job <laughs> in Basra. Then he figured out he was going to build a dam on the, on the Nile um, uh, and so he wrote to the caliph in Cairo and said, I can help you out to regulate the flooding uh, of the Nile. Got over there, realized he could, he, he'd bitten off more than he could chew. He didn't really have the technology to build the Aswan Dam yeah. back in the, in the 11th century. So again, he pretended to be mad. That's brilliant. <laughs> and, I'm going to start and, using that to get out of stuff I don't want to do. Well, he was put in prison, but at least, <laughs> oh. he, at least he didn't have his head chopped off. So that was, that was a result. Excellent. Um, that's absolutely brilliant. I love it. It makes me glad, though, that um, we're announcing our top 10 greatest Britons. We've been letting people vote for weeks now online um, and Newton hasn't made the top 10. And I'm kind of glad now because is he really that special? Well, yeah, Doesn't sound like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah Lister's well, made it instead and Darwin and Turing. So That's yeah. interesting. Yes, I mean, yeah, Turing because he's been in the news recently and because he, he probably needs more, more, more credit than he has been due. Darwin, absolutely, yeah, there's no, 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 uh, no question. But I am surprised. I mean, come on, Newton did do a lot. <laughs> I know. Do you know what it is, though? Lindsay Fitzharris went on a campaign for Lister, um, which is why his votes are so high. Oh, I He's see. been okay. really pushing him. But um, it is important as well, isn't it, to put into context that these men are of their time. Um, they are incredibly forward-thinking. But I, I'm thinking particularly of, like, they still buy into the, the whole, uh, the four humours of the human body, don't they? Um, and do they not still place the Earth at the centre of the universe? They do, yes. Yeah. They, they, they so did. But then, to be fair to them, everyone did. You know, yeah. as you say, it's of their time. It wasn't until Copernicus. Uh, well, even see now here to, to, to annoy Polish people. Even <laughs> Copernicus wasn't the first person. Excuse me, wasn't the first person to say the Earth goes around the sun rather than the other way around. There were scholars, even in ancient Greece, who said actually the Earth isn't the center of the cosmos. The earth goes around the sun, but no one listened to them. Oh, the uh, lady, Alexandria, that got murdered. Yes, Hypatia? And, and, that's right. That's right. Yes. And then there, there was a, there was even earlier than that, there was a, um, uh, Aristarchus was a, was a Greek astronomer who believed the earth went around the sun and, and no one took him seriously. So bigger names like uh, Archimedes basically said, said no this guy's an idiot he thinks the earth yeah. goes around the sun you know surely we can see the sun rising and going and setting so we can see the sun going around the earth so and even in the islamic world there were a few who said Beiruni, by the way you know the the, the great the, the leonardo da vinci of, of, of mm. medieval world he said well it could be the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth it depends on your perspective and your frame of reference well that's and nice think, and vague wow <laughs> yeah. is, that is that's Einstein talking. It is. <laughs> Do you know what? I, so hang on, let me get my science on. So if you believe that it's the Earth at the centre of everything, that's geocentric, and yes. the other one is heliocentric. That's right. Boom, that's right. two C's at GCSE in science. No, no, see there you go. It serves <laughs> you well. <laughs> and the reason it's the Earth that goes around the sun is because the sun is so much more massive than the Earth. Yeah. So. More correctly, the Earth and the Sun both go around their combined centre of gravity, right? But the centre of gravity of Earth and Sun, or in fact all the planets and the Sun, is in the Sun because it's so big. 
So for all intents and purposes, the sun doesn't move and everything else does the moving around it. So um, his idea sounds vague, but he's actually a genius. He's actually a genius, exactly. I don't know if he knew about centres of gravity and things like that because people didn't understand what gravity was until Newton came along. So again, you know, Newton credited gravity. You know, we can't really give can't that to anybody it. else. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you know, they, they, as you say, they were of their time. In terms of the four humours, you know, that, uh, that make up the body, yes, they... they uh, took that from the ancient Greeks, people, the um, great physicians like uh, Galen, uh, who wrote about it. And that didn't really change and develop until sort of the, the scientific revolution in, in Europe. But, you know, you've got to, as you say, you've got to give credit to people knowing what they know of their time. And it's really hard. Scientific revolutions don't come around all the time. You know, mm. we think we know everything now. You know, 100 years from now, we look back and say, how silly we, we were, were in the early 20th yeah. century. You know? So, yeah. We've already mentioned a couple of non-Arabs. So who was, and I'm going to completely balls this one up. <laughs> you're going to have to help me out here. So who is Omar Khayyam? Omar, Omar Khayyam. Khayyam. Khayyam it's, so it's, it's a Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, okay, so Khayyam. So Omar Khayyam. So who was he? He was, well, in the West, he is, he is quite famous as a poet. So uh, he wrote a famous poem called Rabaiyat, which is translated into English and you can look it up and it's wonderful. He, he was one of the greatest poets who ever lived. Um, he was Persian. Um, but what's interesting for me is that he was an even greater mathematician and astronomer. So you know, people know about his poetry because it's there, it's obvious, you can read about it. People don't know that he, he was a great astronomer who calculated the length of the year to incredible accuracy, number of decimal places, you know, not just 365 days. He was, he was doing it down to hours and minutes. Um, and, and he, again, a colourful character that is, whose name is known in the West, but probably not known for the right reasons. People don't know that he was a great mathematician, that he did a lot of algebra and trigonometry. He was solving uh, it, it, so remember, I, I said you know, in, in algebra, there's what are called quadratic equations. So that means x to the power of two. So uh, uh, just a normal linear equation is x plus three equals five, whatever. You can also have quadratic equations, x squared plus x plus 17, whatever. Then you can have cubic equations, which involve x cubed, and they're nasty. You know, they're nasty to solve. Well, he was working on cubic equ equations and solving them and using all sorts of geometric tricks to do it. So, yeah, again, another colourful character that really the world needs to know more about. What is the legacy of all of this scientific inquiry in the East? You've already mentioned Copernicus, I was just going to say it the English way, and how we then transfer back that way. But do we still see this legacy of Islamic study other than, like, obviously we do, it's in the language, it's everywhere, but to what extent do we still see this legacy? Well, I always talk about scientific progress, knowledge about the world and how the world works as, as a continuum. It's, it's not dependent on your culture, your race, your religion, what part of the world you're at. Civilizations rise and fall, they come and go, but, knowledge and scientific knowledge is is a is like a it's like a, a relay race it's the baton that's ha you know as as one runner runs out of puff they hand the baton on to the next runner who takes it and runs with it um and 
the the science and scholarship of the medieval Islamic world is part of this continuum. You know, people often say, oh, yeah, but, you know, what happened to the Islamic world? See how far they've fallen. Where are they now? He said, well, where are, where are the ancient Greeks now? You know, this, the, I'm not talking about modern Greece, you know, which is a flourishing country. But, you know, the ancient Greeks civilization rose and fall. Ancient Egypt rose and fell. And these things happen all, all the time. But that knowledge, and particularly the knowledge developed in, in the Arabic speaking, we'd call it Arabic science because the texts were in Arabic, not because the scholars were Arabs. And as we've discussed, a lot of them were, were Persian. Um, we call it Arabic, so it's written in Arabic. It's part of that continuum. It helped. It, it was then when all this, these texts were translated originally from Greek and, and Persian and, and, and Indian uh, into, into Arabic, they then were translated after that into Latin and then from Latin into other European languages. So a lot of the texts like Copernicus's book. Copernicus wrote this wonderful book, De Revolutionibus, in, in, in Latin, a book on, on astronomy. Um, and in it, if you look through it, and, and, uh, and, and I've seen the, the, you know, the original text, uh, there's page after page of star charts, tables of, of numbers of positions of stars, all in Arabic. So Copernicus had borrowed, borrowed a lot of this the information from the Arabic-speaking world in developing his 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 science, his astronomy, and we see the same in, in lots of other areas. So algebra was, and um, was and um, and the, the Hindu uh, numerals were taken to Europe via the the, the uh, Islamic world and translated. You know, Khwarizmi's book on algebra translated into Latin and then into English. So you can't distinguish and say that's down to them and that's down to another group of people. Science is a is a collective endeavor to learn about the world and as long as texts are passed on from one group to another and translated and studied and understood then it moves forwards sometimes you go back and realize there was something that was discovered and forgotten about because that text never made the light of day but by and large our understanding of the world grows and the story of arabic science is just one chapter in human history that was enticing. I had no, absolutely no idea about any of this. So thank you so much for coming on board and talking to us about science, pleasure. about the Middle East, about Islam, about Persia. I mean, my mind is completely and utterly blown. She's so already on Amazon looking for your books now. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are you working on now? Well, I've... Um... Currently, I'm, I'm sort of very involved in my research, so it's back to quantum physics, actually. Mm -hmm. So it's very, all very highly mathematical, highly, highly theoretical. But I'm also writing a book, um, so a popular uh, book, not on history, not specifically on science, but on how science works. So basically on how to think rationally. You know, we live in a world where people value opinion over evidence. People Their own opinion. A, right, you know, people have a, have, a world, have a view of the world and then you give them evidence to say, no, actually you're wrong. And they can't, they don't know how to change their minds. This is what was called cognitive dissonance. You know, you feel uncomfortable when you hear something that goes against your, your, your ideology or beliefs. So this is a, a, a small book really saying, well, this is how we scientists do it. We never hang on with certainty to any ideas. We're always open to having our minds changed in the light of new evidence. And that will be a good way for wider society to also behave. Don't, you know, be prepared to admit it 
when you get it wrong, when you make a mistake. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't it wouldn't be refreshing if politicians said, you know, my bad, I thought that, but I was wrong. I now think this, and I've changed my mind. Were you per chance inspired by Twitter? Uh, yes, that, that's, <laughs> certainly, that's certainly, you know, when you look at some of the, the Twitter arguments on all sorts of really sort of sensitive issues mm. in society, and, you know, I don't get involved in those arguments because you know that no people aren't going to change their minds. It's, everything's polarised, everything's black and white, there's no nuance, there's no leeway, there's no, well, actually, you've got a point there, you know, I hadn't thought of that. So that's how science works, that's how science progresses. Maybe people can take a leaf out of that. It's definitely not how my life worked after that Churchill statue got defaced and everybody assumed he was my granddad. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're sending you sympathy messages, were they? No. <laughs> no, it was oh, your granddad's a racist, to which my response oh my was, goodness. look at my photo, I'm brown. What makes you think he's my granddad? But, oh, Jim, thank you so much. I love how all of um, this tied in, like, with your own heritage, like, from obviously you were from that region, your dad's hometown. I, I love mm. that. It must have been a great journey for you to go back and do a bit of history in line with your science. Absolutely. It was, it was tremendous fun. Great story. Join us tomorrow when Thomas Morris will be with us to talk all about his book, the mysterious case of the exploding teeth. Uh, he has basically put together this fantastic book of absolutely mental medical weirdness from history. And we're going to discuss some of his favourite cases. This was actually a, a request from one of our patrons. And we're really happy to be able to fulfil that because it's really interesting. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.